This is the ESV that I'll be reading from, 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. Once you have it, go ahead and let me know what's up. Got it? Let's start at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray. Father, we are praying that you would help us all to glean something from the scriptures this afternoon. Something that would edify us, something that would encourage us, something that would educate us as to your plan and purpose for the church, specifically the local church. Father, I pray that you would anoint me with your spirit and with power so that I can preach in a way that glorifies you and that serves your people. And we'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, all the honor and all the glory in Jesus name. Amen. May be seated. So I tell people at times I'm a, I'm like an old man trapped in a 38-year-old's body. So I'll be watching like old shows from like the 80s and 90s. And I love like, uh, you know, crime dramas and stuff like that. Dateline and shows like that. I'll be watching that stuff. <laughs> there you go, Tasha. 2020, you know what I mean? I'll be on that stuff. 60 minutes. But one of my all-time favorite shows is unsolved mysteries (laughs) like I just be watching that joint like daily man I don't know what it is I didn't seen most of the episodes I just be trying to be aware like who got caught (laughs) who's still out here I need to be watching out for you know what I'm saying so I'll be watching unsolved mysteries man if you don't know the show is about unsolved mysteries things that have spanned decades of things that have happened crimes that have been committed and they're trying to figure out who done it at the end of the day so I was watching it uh, recently, and uh, man, it was a, it was an episode, man, that's probably one of the most disturbing episodes I've ever seen on that show. It's about a hospital, right? And in this hospital, you, obviously, you got a bunch of patients there who are getting surgery or who are sick or who are there for a variety of reasons. And then just randomly, people just start getting sick and dying or just getting really, really violently sick and recovering. But it's like people will go in and they'll be in a certain condition and then just boom, out of nowhere, they'll just drop dead or they'll just get worse in their condition with no uh, medical explanation as to what happened. I mean, it started happening out of nowhere and it was happening frequently and frequently and frequently. For example, it was was an older woman. She was in a hospital bed and she was in a room sharing a room with another older woman. And they became friends because they were seeing each other in the hospital every day. And they were just laying next to each other. They're just talking and having a conversation. And literally, like, five minutes later, 
she just start going into convulsions. And then the, her friend is calling the nurse and the doctors and they rush in and they was able to save her life. But they didn't know what happened. She was just fine. She was alert. She was having a conversation. And all of a sudden she lost it. Then there was another patient who his wife brought him to the hospital. These are all elderly people. And his wife brought him to the hospital. And I forgot what his condition was, but he wasn't doing too well. But he seemed to be on the road to recovery. And then out of nowhere, he just took a turn for the worse and just died overnight. And again, the doctors had no medical explanation as to what happened to him. And it's just person after person after person after person. Then they started to do a little investigating. And they realized that a common thread out of every person in this hospital who fell ill had just before they fell ill had an interaction with a, sp a particular doctor who worked there. Come to find out there was a doctor who was like a young man who graduated at the top of his class, super smart, super intelligent. And he would go into these hospital rooms and he would um, he would be the patient's doctor, but he would put things in their IV to just make them sick. So they go into this guy's apartment, they get a warrant for his arrest, and they find like rat poisoning and all this stuff that this man had just in vials throughout his apartment. So that means for a period of months, I think it was actually years, he was responsible for killing countless people in that hospital by poisoning them with this IV. Now, the first time I watched this, I'm like, they need to open up a Christian hospital with a bunch of doctors who know Jesus. So I know you ain't going to do nothing crazy like this. But the story just, man, it just messed me up. Like, what type of sick person would use their position as a doctor, as a modern-day healer, to deliberately be the source of other people's suffering? Now, I was thinking about that, start preparing my message, and I saw a parallel. We've been talking about relationship dysfunction for the first three weeks. We dealt with uh, marriage. For part four, we dealt with parenting. And then last week, we began talking about church dysfunction as it pertains to how we treat each other in the body, make sure we're loving one another, we're forgiving one another, and all that good stuff. Well, today we're going to talk about church dysfunction specifically as it has to do with how pastors relate to the rest of the congregation. What does that have to do with that story I just told? The same way that doctor who was hired to be a caretaker for sick people, but used his position to actually bring suffering on his patients. It's oftentimes what happens in these churches. You'll have men who are called to be pastors in a local church or they get ordained or they get appointed or they are establishing a local church and they end up either intentionally or unintentionally using their position to be a source of suffering for the rest of the congregants. And the reason this is happening is because many people in the church, including pastors, have no idea what their role is. Since they don't know what their role is, guess what happens? It becomes dysfunction. They begin to hurt the people whom God has placed under their charge. The Apostle Peter wants to talk to us about this. We're going to briefly walk through it. In the book of Peter, Peter is an apostle, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing his epistle uh, to the Christians in Asia Minor. And he's writing it from Rome. So Peter is um, living in the Roman Empire, which means that he's going through intense suffering. Nero Caesar is the Roman emperor. Nero was burning Christians alive and doing all type of crazy stuff. He's just martyring all the saints. And Peter is writing from Rome and he's writing a letter to the Christians in Asia Minor like y'all under the Roman Empire, too. So understand that this suffering is coming your way. So he begins to prepare them for hard times. 
So we say, don't retaliate. Don't take vengeance. Suffer like a man of God. Don't suffer like a criminal. And he's giving them all these exhortations and encouragement. And then in the fifth chapter, he wants to shift gears and he wants to give all his encouragement or exhortation specifically to a certain group of people, which were the leaders of the church. And what he's trying to teach them is that suffering is coming to the church. And I want these leaders to make sure they're not contributing to the suffering that the saints are already about to go to go through. Here's what he says in verse one. So I exhort the elders among you. Somebody say elders. As a fellow elder. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter identifies his audience as the elders. Then he identifies himself as a fellow elder. Now, Peter is an apostle. He identifies himself that way in chapter one, verse one. So we know he's an apostle of Jesus, but not just an apostle. He says, I'm a fellow elder. So whoever these elders are that he's writing to, Peter says, I'm one of y'all. But when you keep reading, he wants them to understand I'm actually greater than y'all in authority. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. And here it is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What Paul is what Peter is talking about here. He's trying to let them know that I'm an apostolic voice. I'm not just an elder, but I was a eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus. I was with him when the Jews told him he had a demon. I was with him when they drove him up out of the synagogues. I was with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas, one of them, one of the twelve, betrayed him and the Romans put him in shackles. In fact, I was ready to pull out my sword and kill for the Christ. He said, I'm a witness to this. You ain't talking to nobody who just got saved yesterday. He says, I am an apostolic voice. You need to listen to what I'm saying. I'm a partaker of the future glory that is going to be revealed when Christ comes. You need to listen to this exhortation. What is an exhortation? An exhortation is a motivation. It is to urge. It is to move people to action. What is he trying to move him, these these elders toward? Well, before we understand that, we got to identify who the elders are. The elders, in fact, the word comes from this... um, this word in Greek, presbyteros, and it has multiple meanings and it actually evolved over the years. So on the one hand, an elder or a presbytero simply means an older man. Same way we would use it today. You know, you're talking to a young kid and you like you need to respect your elders. Right? You're just saying somebody who is um, more advanced in age than you. So the word can be interpreted that way. But in this context, that's not what it means. He's talking about a specific office a position of authority in the local church. The word elders began in the Old Testament. They were tribal chiefs. When you read it in the book of Exodus chapter three, you get to the New Testament. You had the elders and the chief priests who were leaders in the synagogue. And then once the church was birthed, they adopted that term elder and they put a new spin on it and it became a leadership position in the local body. Everybody with me? He says, I exhort the elders among you. Now, if you notice That term elders is in the plural. He does not say, I exhort the elder among you, which would indicate one person. He says, I exhort the elders, which indicate a multiplicity of persons. Why is this? Let me get Acts chapter 14, verse 12. 
that is not the right verse. So <laughs> my bad, John. Hold on. I'm like, Barnabas and Zeus, this sermon ain't about no Greek mythology. That's my bad to you. I gave, I gave you the wrong verse. I don't, I don't know where it is. But, and I'll, I'll send it out in the realm later. But if I could paraphrase the verse, it says that um, Paul and Barnabas and the, the apostolic leaders, it says that they appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular. Let me say it again. It says they appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular. So that means that in every singular church, there was what? A plurality of elders. Not there is one elder over one church, but there's a plurality of elders over one church. One of the main reasons we have dysfunction in, in the church today as it pertains to the pastors and the congregation is because we have forsaken God's original design for plurality team based leadership. And we have replaced it for the CEO model where there is singular leadership. Let me say that again. When, what we just read in the scriptures and what I just quoted and what we see in first Peter is that there is a plurality of elders over one church. But if you look at the church today, what do you typically see? One man who possesses sole authority over the body. And let me prove it further to you because we use terms like senior pastor, lead pastor. What does the, what do those terms mean? It means that that one guy who holds that title has preeminence over everybody else. One of the dopest theologians you could ever read is a brother named uh, Dr. Sam Storms. Raise your hand if you ever heard of him. If you like to read, grab his books. Dr. Sam Storms, he, he, he wrote the foreword of a book that I read a couple years ago called The Plurality Principle. And in this book, he's actually trying to make a biblical case for everything that I'm making a case for today, that biblical leadership was never singular. It was always plural. And he says something powerful. He says, in the church, you have two different models. You either have the plurality of elder model or watch this. You have the Moses model, also called the man of God model. What is the Moses model or the man of God? You got to know the story of Moses. When you read the book of Exodus, God raised up a prophet named Moses, and he called him to be the great deliverer of Israel and the great lawgiver. Moses became the very mouthpiece of God. In fact, God said, I'm not even going to speak to the rest of Israel. I'm going to speak to you and you're going to speak to them on my behalf. In fact, it says that God called him up on Mount Sinai and gave him the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and had him dispense it to the people. It was to such a degree where to disobey Moses was the equivalent of disobeying Yahweh. You could not say you were obeying Yahweh and disobeying Moses because he was the very mouthpiece of God. So whenever he spoke, God was speaking. This is what has been adopted in the Christian church today. The Moses model where the pastor now takes on the unique role of the prophet Moses and he alone can talk to God. He alone can hear from God. He alone can take the word of God and dispense it to the people. 
He alone have a have a, a, a monopoly over the church and can do whatever he wants when he wants to do. Not understanding that Moses was a unique figure in the history of Israel. The Bible says that there has never arisen a man like the prophet Moses, whom God knew face to face. Ain't no more Moses people, y'all. Nobody. Even in biblical times, there was no other Moses. In fact, the Bible says you ain't get a new version of Moses until Christ was born. He was the only one who spoke with the father face to face. But before that, there was nobody like Moses. Moses was so unique. The scripture says that God did his funeral. The scripture says in the book of Deuteronomy that God took his body and buried it in a mountain where no man could find it. Ain't no more by, no more people like Moses. But what we're told in the church today is that the pastor is the new Moses guy. He gets the word of God and whatever he says goes, you must obey him. That's not the biblical model. Peter says there's a plurality of eldership. And when that model is adopted, we in trouble. I want to give you some uh, practical problems <laughs> with singular leadership. Let me get that slide T. Um, go through them dangers. Yeah, look at that. The dangers of singular leadership. Woo. <laughs> no accountability. Let's talk about that. When the church is governed by one man and he alone possesses the most authority in the body, nobody can tell him he's wrong. Nobody can correct him. Guess what? Nobody can even disagree with him. Why? Because they have no power to do anything about it. There's little to no accountability. Whatever he wants to do is going to be done. If he wants to get up here and preach a message that's heretical, nobody can say anything because they don't even have bylaws that write out the authority structures. They give it all to this one man. And this is what we see in the church. Constant scandal in the leadership, constant moral failures, constant falls. Let me read you a quote. Let's leave it on this slide. I quoted that book, The Plurality Principle, right? I'm gonna read, I'm, this one I'm going to read to you. I'm not even going to freestyle it. Look at what Sam Storm says here. The quality of elder plurality determines the spiritual health of a church. The quality of elder plurality, team-based leadership, determines the spiritual health of the church. Now watch this. One need only survey the landscape of recent train wrecks in several local churches to see how true this is. In virtually every instance where a gifted leader or pastor succumbed to temptation, be it sex, pride, isolation, bullying, or monetary mismanagement, the problem can be traced to a singular authoritarian pastor who largely avoided meaningful accountability and built the ministry around his own giftedness and personality. <laughs> we see this every day in the church. He continues, I have in mind the sort of senior leader who never loses a vote, 
who regularly intimidates his staff, elder board or deacon board, and who is rarely willing to admit that others might have greater insight and wisdom on a particular issue than he. There's no accountability because he's all by himself. Let's go to the next one. Poor decision making. Why does singular leadership often result in poor decision making? Here's why. Because one man don't know everything. (laughs) Humans have error naturally, right? So if one man has to always depend on his own spiritual life, his own prayer life, his own faculties, his own wisdom, eventually he's going to make a whole lot of bad decisions. Because, again, remember point one, there's nobody to tell me wrong anyway. So you get the two, you got all this poor decision making because he's doing it all by himself. Since he's doing it all by himself and then bad decisions are constantly made, guess what? The church don't move forward. Everything's stagnant because he's the sole voice. Number three. Heard me talk about this before. Pastor centricity. What does that mean? Centricity means to be uh, uh, the central focus of a thing. So pastor centricity means that the church is now centered on the pastor. He's the face of everything. His face is on all the flyers. His face is on the promotionals. His face is plastered all on the website. If there's an event that he ain't even going to be at, his face is on that. The only other face you might see is his wife. That's it. <laughs> everything revolves around the singular leader. He, his, his word is golden. His way, it, it, it rules, it it's, it's runs everything. If he want the carpet to be blue, the carpet going to be blue. If he want the walls painted yellow, the walls will be painted yellow. Every ministry decision, the vision of the church, everything falls on the pastor, so he becomes the central focus. And guess what that begins to do after a period of time? People in the congregation begin to idolize him. And they begin to view him as the prototypical man of God. And they begin to compare all other male relationships in their life to this one guy because all they've ever known is him. It becomes centered on the pastor and idolatry happens very, very quickly. So the ministry centered on him. There's no accountability. Nobody can tell him he's wrong. Well, what's the alternative? Uh, The scripture says that churches are not supposed to be pastor centric. They're supposed to be bibliocentric, centered on the Bible. And when a church is bibliocentric, centered on the Bible, guess what comes next? It becomes Christocentric, centered on Christ. And remember, Christ is the word of God. So whenever you base everything on the word of God, it's going to always point you back to Jesus. But we've taken this out. We've taken Jesus out. We've made the pastor the head of the church. And here we are. Number four. Burnout. Think about it. If one man does everything, he casts vision for the church, he does all the preaching, he teaches all the Bible studies, he makes all the financial choices, he manages all the money, he's responsible for the building getting clean and the building being remodeled, whatever it may be. He's the chief fundraiser, he's the chief counselor, he does everything. Because remember, point three, it's centered on him, so he has to. His ego won't even let him delegate to other people. Because he can't handle other people getting credit for it, so he has to put it on his own shoulders. Then guess what happens? He burns out. 
his body breaks down. His psychological state breaks down. And last but not least, his spiritual life breaks down and we're back into moral failure. Burnout, I remember when we started our small groups here over the summer, I'm telling y'all, if it was up to me, I would be, I would be teaching a small group right now. <laughs> like, y'all know how much I love to teach the Bible. I'm like, I want to teach a small group. Everybody on the board was like, nope. <laughs> Why? Not because they was trying to rob me of my desire to do what I love, but they saw everything else that was on my plate, and they say, that's burnout. So I have a responsibility to yield to their authority. That's why they're there, to keep me from making what would have been a terrible decision. Burnout happens when there's singular leadership. So the Bible prescribes a plurality. Now, this does not mean that every church that doesn't have a plurality of elders is corrupt or is a cult or is spiritually abusive. But what it is saying is that if there's not a plurality of elders, the chances of those negative things happening are far greater. Let's keep going. Verse two. So he exhorts the elders, right? What is he exhorting them to do? To shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He says the responsibility of the elders is to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. Mm. What does he mean by shepherd? Because we all have different definitions of that name. Shepherd and pastor are synonyms. What does he mean to shepherd? Well, the word itself gives us some insight as to what it means as far as the job description. See, let me get that definition. This is from Lonida, Greek lexicon. A shepherd uh, to lead with the implication of providing for, to guide and to help, to guide and to take care of. To provide for, to guide, to help, to take care of. Hmm. Here's what I didn't see. To be the financial guru of the body. <laughs> to be an entrepreneur. To be a chief executive officer, CEO. To have a business mindset. To know everything there is to know about every subject in life to be able to singularly solve every problem that there is to be solved, to be the main chief visionary who always knows the right direction to go. I don't see any of that in this job description. I see guiding, providing, helping, and caring for people. That's the biblical definition. Let me give you this from another perspective, I started doing some research into how literal shepherds functioned in ancient Israel. So I got a bunch of books and I just began to put it all together. And here's what I learned about ancient shepherds in ancient Israel thousands of years ago. Here's how the shepherds actually dealt with literal sheep. History tells us that they often had to deal with a very difficult life because they practically lived outdoors with the sheep. So they will walk around in these heavy cloaks to protect them from the horrible conditions and cold weather that they was always subject to. They would carry a staff and the staff wasn't the walk with the staff was to count all the sheep that was in the flock. Every day got to count 
Why? Because I got to make sure none of these sheep have left the flock. So they got this staff to count and to pull them all together to make sure the sheep are in community and they're staying close by and nobody has gone astray. And then in his other hand, he wouldn't have a staff. He would have a rod. And the rod was to fight off all the wild beasts who was trying to eat up the sheep. Whenever the wild coyotes would come into the sheepfold to eat up the sheep, it was respons- It was the shepherd's responsibility, not the sheep's responsibility. They were defenseless. It was the shepherd's responsibility to chase away the wolves and the foxes so that the sheep wouldn't be consumed by them. History tells us that the shepherds often had subpar below average lodging. They didn't have a life of wealth and luxury. Being a shepherd was actually a very difficult occupation. So when Peter uses that as a metaphor to describe the leaders of the church, he knows that his audience understand what real shepherds do. So when he says that the elders are supposed to shepherd, guess what the congregation is going to think of? They need to be counting the sheep. Make Everybody here? Everybody's still in community. Everybody good. They're supposed to be caring for the sheep. Everybody doing well. Everybody's spiritually growing. Everybody's spiritually thriving. They got to be protecting the sheep. What you've been listening to? Who you've been listening to on YouTube? Who you hearing preaching? What type of doctrine you've been dabbling to? What you've been reading lately? Have you read your Bible this week? That's the job of the shepherd. Not to be a businessman. We've destroyed what God has initiated to be something beautiful. And we've turned it into an enterprise. Now the sheep are out here jacked up because you got shepherds trying to be CEOs. When they pose, they have a staff, (laughs) a heavy coat, and a rod. That's their job all day, every day. That's that's my job until I die. I'm going to have my rod, (laughs) and I'm going to have my staff, And I'm going to have my heavy coat. And if God chooses to bless me in every way he wants, that's fine. But I'm prepared for my staff and my rod and my heavy coat because I see that's my job according to the scriptures. I don't need to get this from a seminar. I don't need another man to tell me what my role is. I see it in the book. Shepherd the flock of God. Now look at what he says carefully. He doesn't say shepherd the flock, period. Nor does he say shepherd your flock. Sit on it. Too many pastors out here taking ownership of that which don't belong to them. Becoming territorial over the people of God like they belong to you. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The flock belongs to Jesus. Watch this. The only person who can claim ownership over the flock is the one who died on their behalf. The scripture says in Acts 20, 28, that Jesus purchased the flock with his own blood. Until a pastor get on the cross and bear your iniquity. Until a pastor get on the cross and have the wrath of Yahweh fall on his back. Until the pastor get on the cross and have his flesh ripped off with a cat of nine tails. No man can claim to be an owner of you. Dysfunction happens when shepherds begin to take ownership over the people of God. So you need to obey me. Do what I say. Do this. Do that. No, no, no. He says, shepherd, God's flock. Peter, how do I do it? First way, he says, exercising oversight. In English, that looks like supervision, but that's not what it means in Greek. It's practically a synonym of shepherding. It simply means to tend to people. 
to care for people, to just keep watch over people. That's what he means by oversight. He's saying, don't be sleeping. Make sure you're paying attention to what the people of God are going through so that you can lead them well. He says, do it not under compulsion, meaning because somebody made you do it. One thing I, I talk to my friend, my other friends who are pastors all the time. I'm so sick of pastors complaining about their jobs all the time. I'm so tired of hearing it, man. I see it all on social media. There was an article that went out about top 10 reasons that pastors are quitting the ministry and all that stuff. And I'm like, look, man, listen, I've been a pastor for seven, going on eight years now. Yes, it's a difficult occupation, like practically everybody's career is a difficult occupation. Yes, it comes with trials and tribulations, just like anybody who leads in the church. Paul says anybody who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. It ain't just shepherds. All Christians who love the Lord will suffer in this life. That's just the reality of it. Does being in this position come with some extra stuff that I didn't have to deal with before I became a pastor? Absolutely. But if God calls you to function in his role, then you should be able to handle it. All this complaining, telling me it's a lot of people trying to be pastors who ain't called by God. At some point, you got to be able to stand like a man and endure this stuff. But I'm hearing all this complaining. Oh, I, I, God, I don't know why God ever called me to be a pastor. I just, blah, 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 they just, woe is me. Scripture says don't do it under compulsion. We sounded like somebody forced us into this. We're supposed to pastor because we get a call by God and we obey him. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Or some translations say, according to the will of God. Here, here's the big one. Not for shameful gain. That's the whole sermon right there. I mean, I can just, just, just go online and just look at all the extravagance and the just luxurious flaunting that we're seeing by pastors these days. And you're not talking about somebody who's against money. I'm not preaching poverty gospel. I'm not against wealth. I understand that God will bless Christians in that way, and that is all fine. But, man, some people are simply motivated by that. And you know they're motivated by it because half of their sermons is about money and how to give and raise an offering for this and an offering for that. And typically it's to make the pastor wealthy. Peter says, shepherd the flock, not for shameful gain. He said it ain't supposed to be all that lucrative in the first place. So you don't want to be motivated by that. But eagerly. What does eagerly mean? It means that it's something you're looking forward to doing. You want to care for the sheep because you love them the way Jesus loves them. Willingly, not for shameful gain not domineering over those in your charge. Not domineering. What does it mean to domineer? It means to lord it over people. It is to um, not function like a shepherd, but to function like a slave master, where your job is to stand up there and dominate the people. Give them commands. Make demands. Do this. Do that. Always asking them to do for you, but you never do anything for them bullying. We read that in my quote that I read earlier from the book, The Plurality Principle. Bullying, spiritual abuse, manipulation tactics, mind control over the congregants. That's all domineering leadership. And it's harder to do it when you got a team. You see how it's harder when you got one person? If you got one person domineering the sheep, then it's going to always be that way. But if you have a team, watch this, not a team of advisors, 
who's just going to say yes, but a team of elders with bylaws that affirms they have legal authority that is equal to the pastor. When you have that, it's hard to domineer because you got five other people who can see it and who can remove you <laughs> if need be. So he says, don't domineer over the sheep. Now, that word there in the Greek is interesting because it's the same word used in Matthew uh, where John uh, it says that James and John were arguing with each other. And it says they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and on your left? And Jesus is like, it's not for me to give to you who can sit on the right and on my left. That's for the father to decide. And then Jesus began to give them a sermon. He says, do not be like the Gentiles who domineer over people. But he who wants to be great among you must first become your servant. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's the same word. So theologians believe that Peter is writing this because he remembers that debate with Jesus 30 years earlier. And he's like, he already gave us the rebuke on domineering leadership. So let me tell these shepherds, don't dominate each other. Serve like Jesus. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down. That's the life of a shepherd. Last part of verse three, but being examples to the flock. Being examples to the flock. What does that indicate? That shepherds do have a responsibility to lead and they shouldn't be afraid of that. But he says that they're supposed to set an example so that other people can get behind them. Let's look at that in a couple of different ways. Let me get Hebrews 13 and 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke, to, spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Wow. That's basically what Peter's saying. He's saying, set an example. He's saying the elders of the local church, they're not Jesus, but they're supposed to do what Paul told the Corinthians to do in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. He's saying they're supposed to set a godly example. So now the church, they have a birth. They have a first person view of what it looks like to live for Jesus. It doesn't mean they're supposed to be idolized or worship or that they become the standard. That's why he says, follow them as they follow Christ. If they're not following Christ, then you have no obligation to follow them. But in as much as they are setting a godly example, he says, get behind them and follow their way of life because they're leading you the way a shepherd should. Shepherds should not domineer, but they should set examples. That means that you should be able to look at the elders of the church and say, that's a faith that I want to imitate. That's perseverance that I want to imitate. That's patience and kindness and grace and mercy that I want to imitate. That's holiness and righteousness and godliness that I want to imitate. Now, that puts a whole lot of a, a lot of weight on the leaders to make sure we ain't acting like fools. <laughs> right. So that means even if I want to have a flesh day, <laughs> y'all know what a flesh day is, right? It's that one day like, God, I didn't get you six. <laughs> I'm about to let somebody have it today. I didn't get you six days of righteousness. But on this day, I need a flesh day because I got to get this off my chest. I can't have that because <laughs> I got to set an example for Jesus's bride. And glory to God that even when I fall short, not if, <laughs> even when I fall short, we got a savior who's ready to dust us off and forgive us and give us another shot at it. My last point and we out of here. 
me give a recap. Churches become dysfunctional when we forsake God's design for elder plurality. Churches become dysfunctional where shepherds no longer shepherd, but become businessmen. Third, look at what it says in verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And we don't know specifically what the crown of glory is. Some people think it's synonymous with eternal life. Others say, no, that's probably a specific crown that God has on reserve for those who shepherd well. And I believe that's what this is. He says there's a specific reward that's on reservation for godly elders in the local church. And he says that when Christ comes, the chief shepherd, notice who's the chief shepherd, not the pope. <laughs> okay, not no senior pastor. The chief shepherd is who? Christ, that term is never used of another human in the Bible. When he appears at his second coming, he won't be empty handed. But the Bible says he comes quickly and his reward is with him. Revelation 22. He has rewards that he's going to dispense to all his obedient children. And then he got another reward for his elders. He says, I'm going to grant you this reward when I come. And I was reading this in my preparation. I'm like, what is the application for this? What does this have to do with everything else Peter's saying about elders and what they're responsible to do and not to do? Then it hit me. This reward is coming in the next life. Not in this life. This means that I cannot be motivated. The elders cannot be motivated. The shepherds cannot be motivated by earthly recognition. I cannot be motivated by somebody telling me this is a good sermon today. I can't be motivated by a social media shout out. I cannot be motivated by an ordination service that I just had a few weeks ago. I can't be motivated by a certificate. I can't be motivated by a seminarian degree. I can't be motivated by any of that stuff because all that stuff can be gone tomorrow. People will love you one day and be done with you the next. You cannot be, you cannot be motivated by that. But the recognition that should motivate the shepherds is that when Christ comes, he says he's going to publicly recognize you <laughs> in glory. He's going to put all his people on display and say, look at what I did through them. Look how I cleaned them off and they glorified me with their life. Now, wear this crown. That's far more motivating than any recognition we can get down here. So for my current leaders in the room, my future elders and shepherds in the room, and we have them here at Livingstone's Church, whether they know it yet or not, <laughs> I hope you take heed to everything I'm saying because at some point in your walk with the Lord and your ministry, you're going to have to apply all this stuff. Don't domineer the sheep. Care for the sheep. Don't be a businessman. Make sure you work well in a team and understand that your recognition will come when the Lord appears in glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the guidance that we get from the word of God and that you didn't leave 
elders and shepherds out here to try to figure out how to do this by themselves. You left us a blueprint, a protocol. God, I pray that I can follow it to a T. I've made my mistakes as a leader, always will. But Lord, I pray that as I grow in you and as I grow as an elder in the faith, that I can grow in pleasing you and serving the body to the best of my ability. God, I pray for the elders in this room, our leadership board, those who are a part of the governing body, those in this room who are gifted shepherds who will at one point be appointed as elders here at Living Stones. I pray that even now that you would reveal to them what their calling is so that they would see it. They wouldn't run from it, but that they would embrace it. Lord Jesus, I pray that Living Stones Church would be a church that is never abusive to people who would never have a testimony of this is a place where people got hurt and beat up by elders and leaders. I pray that that's never in our story. But I pray that we could be a place where people can grow, where people can be protected and feel loved, feel fed by the word of God, feel, feel nurtured. That you would keep our church from moral failure, corruption, and all type of ungodliness that is displeasing to you. We pray against all the dysfunction that's in the universal church around the world. We pray for those who have stopped affiliating with a local church because of something that happened to them. Abuse they may have experienced by a leader. Manipulation or whatever the case may be. I pray, God, that you would draw them back to the chief shepherd first. And that you would guide them to a safe place where they'll feel comfortable, where they'll be taken care of. You will send them shepherds after your own heart. Be a blessing to our church. Help us to grow in this season of ministry that we're in. And meet us next week as we continue the church hurt aspect of our series as we close everything out. Pray that you will prepare our hearts in advance for what we're going to discuss. We'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.